Bonus Tracks, the official blog of Spotlight On, is currently accepting submissions for reviews and opinion pieces related to the topics we cover in the podcast. We're looking for engaging, insightful, and well-written articles that offer critical analysis and thoughtful commentary on various aspects of music. To learn more, visit SpotlightOnPodcast.com and click on Call for Submissions. Thanks. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on Peter Kruder and Roberto De Gioia, who join us to talk about their new but long gestating duo project. Viennese artist, producer, and DJ Peter Kruder is one of the legendary figures in electronic music, known for his pioneering work as a member of Kruder and Dorfmeister. Kruder and Dorfmeister named after Peter and his collaborator Richard Dorfmeister, is an Austrian duo who broke out creating trip-hop and down-tempo remixes of pop, hip-hop, and drum and bass songs. Equally independent and innovative, K&D have recently announced their 30th anniversary tour, slated for later this year. Pianist Roberto De Gioia was born in Milan and made his name manning the keyboard bench with Klaus Doldinger's Passport. Over the years, Roberto has worked with many American jazz greats, including Art Farmer, Joe Lovano, and Clark Terry. Together, Peter and Roberto fuse electronic, jazz, pop, and dance music into a unique sound deserving of a wide audience. Check out the show notes for a link to a video of their stunning premiere live performance, which took place around the time of this discussion. Despite their pedigrees and accomplishments, Peter and Roberto were relaxed, engaging, and very self-deprecating. Enjoy our talk. Thank you both for making time. It's so exciting to be able to speak with you. Thank you. I began my day listening to the album one more time before talking with you. It's just a, it's a beautiful piece of work. And uh, I think the first question I have to ask is, how does one pronounce the album title? Pronouncing is difficult. It was a, how do you say, placeholder for something for a title to come. So the title hasn't arrived yet somehow. Sorry, so no, sorry. there is no pronunciation. Actually, the reason we had no title and uh, a few months before the album was released, I wrote an email to Peter grabbing my biography together and what connects us, what our story and since we hadn't an album title, I wrote Peter the eight lines, you know, the eight bars, how do you say, uh, eight Bindestriche. Uh, and then P Peter called me up weeks later. I have the album title. It's this. That's the story, basically. That was the story. Yeah. It's a good thing for people that uh, you can put your own idea in. And we played, we just played a concert and then we said, so it says, there's eight lines, so it's probably eight letters, and you can think of something yourself. And now people start writing the names that they think would be appropriate as a title for the album. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That works out quite well with the music, I think. It's very evocative and open to journeys and exploration. That's, that's and what we thought as well, you know. It, you know, for us, 
doing what we do anyway in our particular fields. We wanted to get away also from what to call this music because people say, so what is this? Is this neoclassical? Is this ambient? Is this, what kind of music is this? And we just don't have a title for it, really. We just, it's just music that's, that is a big part of our history and out of this long history in music and us getting together, this came out basically. So we had no intention to do an ambient album or a neoclassical album or anything. We just wanted to make an album of nice music and, and put Alberto's incredible piano talent and my vintage synthesizers together. I struggled actually when I was reading about the album and I kept seeing all the references to neoclassical it didn't resonate for me. No. It felt too limiting. I hope this word doesn't bother you, but it felt almost like a after the fact or contrived mm -hmm. label to put on it. And the part that especially did not resonate for me is when I think of neoclassical music, I think of something maybe less emotional. And I, I find this music highly emotional, not a specific emotion, but highly evocative. Mm -hmm. Interesting, yeah. Very good observation, yeah. Mm -hmm. The person who wrote the whole thing that goes with the record, we had a conversation with him and the way it turned out, to be honest, I'm not so happy afterwards as well. But it was sometimes in, in this train, what's happening when you release a record, if you don't change it immediately, it just gets stuck and it goes along on the ride with you, you know? And I had the feeling in the beginning that it was not quite on point and I should have said something, yeah. Well, I'm sorry to raise a... Uh, no, no, no. That, no it's, it's, you, know, you know, it's you always learn with those things. But on the other side, I got to know the project more when we did it live last week. Really, even earlier when we rehearsed it and it was clear to us ourselves what this music is for us and because the making is so quick and we did it like five years ago we had ideas we didn't talk about it there was no initial concept we said we have to do this and this with a little this and this which happens a lot in music these days or i have friends musicians they plan their music and we didn't plan it we did it and we let it rest for like really four or five years Actually, while rehearsing in the last couple of weeks, we really discovered what the music is to us. And it turns out to be very different to the record. I mean, the record is like one thing. And when we do it live, it's even more. And it's, it's richer. It's, it's, it, has, it presents more colors even to ourselves so that we get ideas for next albums and whatever. So in this stadium, to get the point when... The text was written. It was also somehow too early for ourselves too, you know. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. It, because it didn't even span the whole. It was a, it was too specific to talk about the record from this perspective. Yeah, true. Very true. Yeah. You know what's what's interesting about that? So now that's the second element of this album. The first being the title whose definition or what it encompasses seems to change with time or be mm -hmm. more able to be undefined, right? Like you have this idea of what title's not available yet, but the album's already out. And the description of the album is evolving, but it's already out in the world. 
there's something there the dynamicism in that is i don't know there, there's something very interesting to to unravel there i'm curious about the live presentation could you talk to me a little bit about that you brought it up i was going to get there later but what are you doing live how are you presenting this music we had many uh questions <laughs> so how do we do it how do we and and we started off i gave peter a like sketches of how I would play Rache, which is short abbreviation or abbreviation for Rachmaninoff. So it has nothing to do with revenge or anyway. So I gave him snippets and then in order that Peter could work on it, but somehow nothing came back and I didn't grab anything. So we met and then we played and we said we, we, we could change this we could enlarge or make this part longer and so we talked a lot and then there was one point where we just improvised more and more and the most important thing is that peter actually may i say that peter started really started to play synthesizers in order to reproduce the album by pushing buttons and turning knobs so we created our live versions, which are 50% are very different from the album, but it keeps the heads, the themes and the harmonies and the, the emotion and whatever it keeps, but it makes it richer to reach, you know, the audience. Yeah. And Peter started off with a few notes on the synthesizer and on each of the 16 18, 20 rehearsals, he said, what could I add more? And we talked about what can I do better? It was really getting better each time we did it. And it's still every time we do it, we rehearse it or play it. And it's so different to the other versions. But you can still recognize the music, of course. Right. And it was, a, it was for me, it was a, a, an extreme challenge because in the beginning, I wanted to do more like we do the KD shows where I play stems from the computer and then manipulate those stems and work with those stems. But Roberto said, no, 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 you have to play live. You have to play live on the synthesizer. And I said, no, I, the last time I played live on, a, on an instrument was in my youth when I played in a shitty guitar band. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm, I'm not going to do that. But he was very persuasive. And then we tried one song and it turned out really good. And then in the end, we played, I think, 16 songs in the show. And 11 of those are completely live without any sequence or without anything. Three, yeah, yeah. And it's so much fun, you know. I had to really train and work out, work on the instrument to be able to perform live without any hiccups, really. But in the end, it opened up a new perspective for me, which was absolutely brilliant. And I thank him very much to to <laughs> I say, thank you too, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the cool thing, he is so amazing on the piano. I could even play a really wrong note and he would just play something around it and make it right again. So I have uh, the best safety net that's possible. So I could, <laughs> I could, I could, I could uh, pick up that challenge though. I'd like to stay in this in the in this line for a moment. I have a follow-up question for Peter and then one for Roberto. Peter, I wonder, as part of you coming around to playing live on the synthesizers and the process you just described, the outcome you just described, how much of what you had to contend with was 
the idea of playing an instrument live again and the confidence building in that and how much of it was a technical challenge in terms of how to present the music using your your gear yeah could you talk about that a little bit yeah you know the, the, the thing is that basically the way we work together i'm a complete sound fetishist so my synthesizers have full with great sounds programmed and i love to do that and of course i play when i record myself i play in the studio so to make it into one song without any other help that is a challenge and so i had to really learn that in the combination with the sounds i i find a, a simplicity for me that works very well with the music that roberto is doing around it uh, when, when we play live roberto's piano playing is the base it's the foundation mm -hmm. and me is the coloring on top mostly and it's it's a really good combination because my simplicity works very good with his complexity. It makes a very good relationship in 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 what comes out to the people. Does that resonate for you, Roberto? Does that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting because there are so many aspects of how could uh, of Peter and I we have a blind and understanding in in life. We resonate exactly. We we know each other since sixteen years and really are very good friends and even more, you know, it, it's, it's, and to, to me, music is not complicated or simple. You know, I just give, or we just give the music what it needs. So we are really servants to the music. I can play very simple and very reduced at what I do with these songs, but there are songs they need, especially if you have, you know, a, a huge place, a hall, where 20 or 30, 40 meters in the back, there's someone sitting and you cannot just, you have to reach them too and you have to fight. So I'm fighting on stage, you know, and I'm never happy with myself, of course. But on the other hand, I see the whole thing and I don't see my playing at all. I always look at, at us and the music, what needs the music. So I listen more to myself and Peter than to myself and say, well, I'm playing, you know, that's a problem when I, I listen to interesting music is, or guys who really can play good, you know, they like them to play good. They enjoy and you can feel how they enjoy themselves playing good, mm. like posing, showing off. And I hate that, you know, it's, it's, I don't, because that's, I don't want to use the music to be a, hipper person or mm. you know i hate that so therefore it's very good for me that i listen more to peter when i'm playing than to my play so when peter plays a note whatever or sounds on and he plays it so strong and meaningful i only have the chance to play right notes to it and maybe he's the same way you know when he listens to my shitty playing mm. <laughs> He plays whatever, <laughs> you know, fits to my sheet of playing, of course. You know. Well, what's interesting to me, and this, this relates to the follow-up I wanted to ask you, Roberto, a lot of what you've said in the last few minutes strike me as being very consistent with someone who comes from a jazz tradition. So the idea that when Peter mentioned he can play a wrong note or a bad note and you can make it good with what you play around it. I think of that as almost 
stereotypically what a jazz player does in an ensemble, this notion that there's no wrong notes, just you can contextualize it and find the the beauty to to make the dissonance sound good. But also the way you talked about the way you prepared for the live presentation that also when you were speaking, it reminded me of how a jazz ensemble might take a standard and have the melody or the theme just serve as the jumping off point and maybe solo around that and come back to it. You know, you have yeah, exactly. I, the, the quintessential notion of that to me is like my favorite things, right? You can start with that melody and then all of a sudden it's 20 minutes later. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it was a real kitschy, uh, corny song from a musical and Coltrane took it. And from then, from this moment on, he gave this really overground melody, you know, it became instantly a standard for deep music, you know. Yeah. And uh, with Alvin playing this incredible triplet rhythm over it, and it's really striking how you can turn a simple melody into something deep or vice versa, you know. It's all a matter of how you, of a po point of view. And since I'm a jazz player originally, And I played with in my 20s with a lot of Woody Shaw, Art Farmer. And so I know how to treat a melody and give a melody a different color, different meaning. So it's easy with this music. For me, it's easy with, the, with any kind of melody to make something which is different each time and is a challenge for ourselves, for our playing. Yeah. Peter, there's a there's something that's emerged in a lot of the conversations I've had with artists, especially European artists, over the last several months. I, let's let's call it last year in particular, which is many more electronic oriented artists are playing either in jazz contexts or with jazz players. Like those worlds seem to be much more combining that seems to be accelerating. And again, especially in Europe. And I wonder, do you go looking for collaborators of different musical backgrounds? And whether you do or not, how important is it to have a collaborator who comes maybe from a slightly different musical tradition or context? What does that do for you? Myself, honestly, I'm, I need a personal connection to somebody to make music with him. Okay. Him or her, okay? So I could not use the internet, what so many people do, and write somebody that I like the music and say, hey, it's great, you want to play on that track? I cannot do that. I need to sit with somebody in the studio and feel the moment, feel the, mm. feel the air, feel the day, feel the moon, and all of this. And the other thing is the comeback of jazz in music, or in popular music, is... It's like the whole 90s revival that is going on. Music is so much changing at the moment. And also the aspects of music is so much changing. And this totally reminds me of the early 90s. Just what's happening in music now totally reminds me of that status quo of the early 90s where we came out of the 80s and there was one sound and then techno started and breakbeat started and, and acid jazz. And the, oh, but they all looked to jazz for inspiration. As a, look at The Detroit techno in the early 90s, they were totally jazz influenced. All of those, us as well, uh, uh, he had this everywhere. And this went away 
in the 2000s and for the last, say, 15 years or even longer. And now there's a lot more players again, a lot more people buy instruments again because there was a period where everybody wants to be a DJ or a producer. Now they sell more guitars than ever. They sell more keyboards than ever. It's a very interesting shift in time, I think. And I think that's why that's why you, you probably have that impression at the moment that there's a change and there's a, a new awareness of that. And then, of course, if I'm not a really good player, I look for somebody who is a really good player. And mostly chess players are really good players. So Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the other thing that that has been my my sort of pet theory about a lot of this as well is that what you talked about happening in the 90s, I actually think that had a very big impact on jazz. For those of us old enough to remember, you know, there was a period of time where especially in the 80s that where the narrative was is jazz dead. That was the question in this sort of post miles, post fusion yeah, just nobody knew what was next for the music, and was it going to be conservatory music, and was it going to be the men in the suits on the bandstand, or was it going to find a way to to stay, you know, relevant and ever changing? And I think that's really happened in the last ten or fifteen years. Like the mm-hmm. idea that jazz finally has learned to embrace again modern, contemporary, become more future looking. Even the way it's influenced it now in American hip hop and pop, yeah, you can hear jazz in the culture in a way I don't think I expected to again in my lifetime, and it's very exciting. It's very exciting. Oh, totally, yeah, yeah, totally, I totally agree. It's just it, it, it's an interesting thing because when I was growing up, when I was like let's see, fourteen, around that time, jazz was very intellectual, mm-hmm. and when I when I listened to jazz or I was confronted with jazz, it was always like. Ah, you may be too small to understand. And then, then in my early twenties, uh, when I, I I started my music career, really, I got introduced to people who danced to jazz, who were not sitting down and listening, who really freaked out when they heard John Coltrane and ran through the apartment and playing a saxophone, air saxophone, you know. And I felt a real joy. And this was the moment where I understood, hey, this is much more than some intellectual bullshit. It's really an emotional music and there's so much in it. When this barrier was gone, I totally embraced jazz and I understood it from a much deeper and spiritual perspective than all those years before when I was young. And this is a very, this was for me the turning point. And I think this was also one of the reasons why jazz had at a certain point a problem to grow. It was especially in Europe here where when it became the intellectual music, I think this was the moment it stopped growing, really. Yeah. It lost its connection with the fact that it started as dance music. It was it dance music. It started as music in clubs. You know, there, this is also such an incredible thing to think, you know, there was a period before there were records and turntables and DJs who had clubs. There was, every club had a band and there was musicians in there and they played, some some clubs played standards, but some clubs played really completely abstract weird music and people dance their ass off too yeah it's phenomenal better communicated to people i think there's a there could be a good film in this about the, the whole history and and what it really meant for people also the standard of being a player you know some it, it, you see it in all music you know you see it in some blues music there's really bad guitar players but they just play wonderful even though they are not super talented but they just 
hit the right notes. And there's players who hit a million notes a minute and they don't touch you in any form. So, yeah, I mean, some of those blues players, you could give them a two or three string guitar and they get more out of it. <laughs> I mean, from the Lomax archives, you know, you, you see those videos. I mean, these guys, they play on one string and you cry. You just, you, 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 I have tears running down my cheeks when I watch those guys singing about how poor they are, you know. That's amazing music to me. Yeah. yeah. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. If you like what you've heard so far, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. For past episodes, web-only exclusives, and to join our mailing list, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. And now, back to Spotlight On. I don't want you to give away any of the sort of secrets of the music. So I, I want to ask this question, then maybe I'll even withdraw it a little bit. But I'm curious about the instrumentation on the album, because when I looked at the, the label copy, the only credited instrument is piano. <laughs> Everything else is around production. And I get that, you know, I, I sort of understand that from an electronic music perspective. But I wonder, what were you doing in the studio? Oh, no, it's an it's another thing I somehow a little bit regret because in the years when I really discovered jazz for myself, all the good records, all the good Herbie Hancock records, everything, they all had the instruments on the back. That's how I learned why those sounds are like those sounds. You know, you need to have a 2500 or 2600 to do this and you need a MOOC for that. And the thing is, I we should have really made a small list on the end, or at least say thank you to those instruments or, or do something like that. But we we should do it on the next time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but then what, what we did is I'm fortunate to have started collecting synthesizers a long, long time ago when they were still not as crazy as it is now, as the crazy prices you pay now. And since then, I have a, a very nice collection of really beautiful instruments. And when we were working, we basically just jumped from one instrument to the other. You know, some songs started like uh, Clock Tick Tock started when Ruperto picked the string on the piano. And I recorded that and looped that. And that was the bass for one song. But then... Another song is just, I play a note on the arp that makes, and, and, and we create a, like, it's, it, it's creating a path where a song can then be built on or, or yeah. developed on. Basically on Jupiter 8, arp, Odyssey, arp 2600, Jupiter 4, oder? Jupiter yeah, 4. Or Juno, Juno 60, a MOOC, you know, Model B. Flagships, uh, you know, yeah. the old... Old guys, uh, 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 VSC three we used. Uh, yeah, you had the old Roland Junos. Those, it's unbelievable what those are selling for now. It's like yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. I, I bought mine. The thing is, I bought my Jupiter eight for three thousand euros. This costs now almost fifty thousand euros. It's absolutely wow. insane. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's insane. It's really yeah. insane. And it's you know, the problem is, it's like the same thing like with the guitars. There's only a limited amount of synthesizers made. You know, the Jupiter 8, they only made 2,500 instruments. You know, so even though it's a, a very famous synthesizer, it was not in a big production because it was super expensive back then to buy it. I think with two, two or 3,000 uh, pieces, you can 
have all the rich musicians in the world and then it's and they stop doing that. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about I hadn't thought about that. My perception was they were in everybody's house but or everybody no, 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 wanted yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. But they, I, I, that I, was that I, was the advent of like the MIDI studio. So you'd yeah. go to the studio and it would all be there. You weren't you didn't have it at yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, the, yeah. the, the, I think they sold I'm not sure, but they sold a couple of hundred thousand of DX7s. Mm -hmm. rather terrible digital keyboard from the 80s that everybody wanted and that's that was the starting point where everybody got rid of their analog of the great analog synthesizers that everybody pays now a fortune to get then but i was lucky because i started pretty early with collecting those things and also the equipment for my studio they basically always when i made money i bought a piece for the studio and i, I do this through the day Roberto, what do you play in the studio? Is it an acoustic piano? Like, do you, and do you play any synthesizers? And what did you primarily play on this record? Upright piano from Peter, but with the white damper. So that cut off the highs and it's very a dry. very mellow, no mellow sound. Uh -huh. Yeah. But you know, this is basically practicing mode, practice mode for houses with several flats on top and underneath and next so that they don't hear it, it was made to reduce the noise you produce mm -hmm. and this is the wide thing which the hammer hits the string and in between there is this white piece of cloth instead of bing it goes you know so and that's that we put on every note every note it was wow. uh, so that the sound was very mellow and more emotional and not, I hate loud piano playing, you know, mm -hmm. like really, I mean, for classical music, it's, it's great. You know, when Horowitz goes in there, it's great. It's an explosion and it's emotional, but uh, this should be very quiet and intimate. But it's also really interesting that we did this more out of a feeling just because the sound is more mellow and 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 sounded and, better in the room when we were it doing sounded better in the room and and the thing is it also left a lot of space for the top end for the synthesizers yeah 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 which is beautiful you know so the synthesizers can shine more on top of it because the piano has so much overtones that it's really hard when the piano is in front as a solo instrument so to say it's really hard to put things around it because with a normal piano the yeah, if you look at the frequency spectrum, it captures so much space in it. It's really difficult. Yeah. To answer your question, Lawrence, is um, I played mostly piano and Peter mostly synthesizers. Of course, we some at some point we switched. And when it became complicated, Roberto, of course, played the synthesizer. And we picked the sounds and, and it, it never became complicated. It, it's also a really nice thing because it's it's a pure joy for me to sit in front of a synthesizer and just program sounds for hours on end. I can do this forever. And then I play them and I have my way of playing them. Mm -hmm. Then I introduce the sound to Roberto and he plays it completely different, which is amazing, which make, gives the sound a completely different perspective and a different life. And it's beautiful. That's really beautiful. And the other way around, you know, when I listen to Peter playing this one note and there's so much concentration in this note and I hear with Peter's ears, because of course I would play different and I have every individualism, every 
different individual. So when Peter plays it, he, he, you can hear things that I don't hear when I play the synthesizer. It's really funny. It's like the time stands still when he plays a note and he fumbles around and, and he's not there. And no, it's not there. And I don't understand it. It's the same when Peter asked me play something and I change mm. something. He doesn't understand it, you know. I, I, I wait and after 15 minutes, you know, he's got it. And oh, it's, I love it so much, you know. So there are compliments, you know, going on. Mm. And it's really a great way of communication. And there's never any kind of what's who does it better. It's just like two rivers, two yeah. little rivers flow together and it becomes one water. <laughs> I don't know, you know, how to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. Could you tell me what, if any, role humor plays in your music generally? And I think maybe I, I would love to know what both of you have to say about it. But I, my perception is there's a little devil inside of Peter in particular. <laughs> yeah, we, we both, uh, uh, we both <laughs> laugh all the time, which is, I mean, for me, I don't work with people that are, have no sense of humor. I cannot stand because in, in the studio, you're, you're so close together all the time and it's so intimate and you need to have fun. You need to have fun. And I see that you're a little bit of a David Bowie fan like myself. And I see behind your head, I have this is the Duffy print up there. Yeah. And and the thing was like, for instance, David Bowie, when he did Heroes with Brian Eno, they were laughing all the time because they had put on these two personalities of two British actors and they were talking like that all the time. And they just crawled, were crawling on the floor laughing. On the other side, did this really hard, heavy record, you know? Yeah. So I think it's really, for us, it's really important uh, and it starts in the morning when we see each other with a, with somebody has to say something to the other <laughs> and, and we laugh until we go to bed again. And also we needed to extend our uh, program for the live show last week in Vienna. We played at the wonderful concert house, one of the most famous houses in the world for orchestral music and orchestras and uh, Vienna Symphonic are there, you know. So we needed to extend the program and we, we, we came, <laughs> I don't know about, uh, how it came to existence, but I played the uh, Richard Strauss or Johann Strauss uh, Donauwalzer. Bom, 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 blum, 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 as an anchor. But I played it, I started to play it so slow. Bom, bom. Um, and Peter, we laughed our asses off on every rehearsal. And Peter made with the Pink Floyd BCS3 noises to it. So that was an anchor which really was crying, for, you know, was la it was laughing. The, the music was laughing. It's as, as, as soon as, as. And the people recognized it. And a few. On the third note, and then it, since it was so slow, people said on the fifth note, I knew what you were doing and we laughed. And so you heard different sections of the audience. <laughs> and then uh, laughing, you know, <laughs> you know as they realized it, was almost 10 minutes because one was chorus so was really seven minutes. <laughs> 
And, and when he when he first played it in the studio, I fell off the chair because I thought it's, it was so funny to do. This is the slowest version ever. You cannot get more <laughs> traditional. You cannot get more traditional than and so soft and so and and it has such a deepness. Yeah, yeah. Everyone yeah. in the audience knew what note was coming next, but then to hold back the no next note to a really heavy extension was good. I think <laughs> was fun. it was real fun. We have yeah. it on video, on tape, or uh, yeah, we, so we, we filmed everything. It comes so. out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hope you will uh, put that up on YouTube or release we, it somewhere. We, we, yeah. we, 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 we're cutting yeah. it now. And once it's finished, we put it up. It was great. It was really, really good. Peter, what what role or what influence does um, being a trained barber play in your music? The thing is, um, as a barber, it's very important to have the end result in your head. Because uh, when you cut hair, it's also... It has a system. You need a system. You also need a little bit of a system in music to, to finish something, I would say. Because when I was a barber, I was always looking at people and also feeling what they need. And it's just pretty much the same with music. I also I always feel what the music needs. For us, it was uh, this was one of the main things when we worked together. The songs always told us exactly where they want to go. And as soon as we did too much, the songs told us that's too much. And if it was not enough, the songs told us, eh, you need to work on it a little bit more. There's not much talking while we work. Yeah. Before uh, uh, and after, you know, about anything in life. But not, we don't talk about music. Maybe an idea. We couldn't need a distortion on the voice, you know, but that's it. And there's not, hey, we need blah, 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 blah. blah. So it's, it's very a quiet process. For instance, when we did uh, Falling, the, like the first song of the album, you hear this piano that goes... Dun, 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 dun. A chromatic, glissando uh, thing. And when we were playing the chords, Roberto was playing the chords, we recorded the chords, I said to him during he was playing, we need something that falls down. It should be something like somebody stumbling. Mm. Can you do something like that? And he did this. Dun, 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 dun. And this is the great thing about us, or about him especially. I can <laughs> talk to him while he's playing. I have an idea and I say, oh, can you do something like somebody stumbling? And he can immediately stumble, <laughs> stumble on the piano. <laughs> no, and, and this is the way we work, which is incredible. Since we had these wonderful experiences, I want Roberto to live in my computer when I compose on my own. So I can just tell him what to do. But uh, Well, that might be coming. I think uh, some of the technological. <laughs> be careful what you ask for. It's really, um, it's really around corner. I gonna AI myself a, a little Roberto in my computer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the la the last question I wanted to ask you about. Well, first of all, before I ask the question, I wanted to say one of the tracks that stood out for me so profoundly was uh, "Lonely Jupiter." Mm -hmm. And it was only after I, I listened to the music for the first time and then I read about it. I thought it was important to hear it without context. But the idea that it was somehow evocative of the uh, the Rutger Hauer uh, monologue in Blade Runner, mm -hmm. then going back and listening to it again. Oh, my God. I had just recently rewatched Blade Runner. My my 18 year old oh, yeah. son wanted to see it. We oh, just watched yeah. it like two weeks ago. And uh that scene, I forget about it every time. 
and then it comes it sneaks up on me in the movie because it's just tender and powerful it's it's probably in my top three movies and for me the amazing thing is i probably saw this film close to a hundred times i think over over my because i have it on every format i have it on on video cassette i had it on dvd on blu-ray in this extended version this super and it's always new for me I always watch it and it always looks like I watched it the first time. It's This is a movie that never gets old for me. Never. The the opening shot, everything, the music, the lightning, the all the actors. It's such a great movie. Yeah, It's interesting that some works of art do that. Dark Side of the Moon does that for me as well. I've listened to that album, I venture to think, thousands of times in my life. And... Mm-hmm on vinyl, on CD, on cassette, and on the 30th anniversary edition and the 40th anniversary. I mean, you know, if you put out a version of Dark Side of the Moon, I'm going to buy it. And I can listen to it now and hear something, even yeah. despite knowing where every note and every lick is, that, that there's just something so profound about some <laughs> works. Peter, remember when we were in the Abbey Road Studios 12, yeah. 13, 14 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, mastering our uh, an album, what we produced, and in one room, we heard Pink Floyd, the album, and it was the original reel in the Abbey Road being transferred to whatever format. And we stepped into this room occasionally, you know, just by accident with our mastering engineer. Our hearts stood still. Sorry to interrupt, Lawrence, but oh, no. I have to tell you this. <laughs> was yeah. crazy. Isn't it amazing how the tapes themselves are? I mean, it's is it the tape, like those, <laughs> they're the totems of the... I know that we also, we, when we were at Abbey Road, we were in, in Studio 2 where the Beatles did everything. When we walked around and there was just a little piece from the wall <laughs> dropped out on the floor. And uh, just uh, it just broke out. And Roberto took it <laughs> and put it in his pocket. And, and, and I, I, I sat on it the, the, all the days, you know, <laughs> and it became, it looked like Coke in a little plastic <laughs> thing. And I, we were flying back and I almost got arrested and said, this is, this is some piece of wall from Abbey Road Studio 2. Yeah, of course. I mean, of course. It's some, yeah, it's of course, my friend. Yeah, we're really, yeah. From Abbey Road, I'm not sure. <laughs> you know what? Maybe if you snort it, some of the Abbey Road magic yeah. will. <laughs> oh, a little bit of trick coming out there. <laughs> um, all right. My, my last thing for you. Um, I saw this referenced as the debut album between the two of you. Does that imply there's more? There's certainly more. There's certainly more. As Roberto said before, for the live show, we were supposed to play uh, at least 90 minutes. And Mm. the record is only like 42 or 43 minutes long. So we already had to do for the live show another extra 45 minutes. And we did a couple of really nice uh, songs already for that. And it was just in the period of the preparation for the concert that we did this new song. So there's definitely going to be a, an, another record. That's for sure. Wonderful. Wonderful. I, I, you know, if there's any chance of you bringing this music to America, I, I very I would much would like to. to see it live. Yeah. yeah. We'd love, to. We'd love yes. to. We work on that. We try to find the, uh, the right people to get this together to tour it a little bit because mm-hmm. it's just beautiful to play. Also do this because it's so detached from what we did, both of us probably did before. Yeah. yeah. And it's 
such a wonderful experience and also for the people who know us, who know our both of our workspace and work what we did. And to experience this is just is just such a departure and so unexpected, but so good. I yeah. No, no, yeah. we love to do more. Definitely. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Peter Kruder and Roberto De Gioia. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson, and our theme music is by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. For past episodes, web-only exclusives, to make a donation to support our production, and to join our mailing list, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Thank you.